0: Walters is back open to full capacity with bar service and their ever so popular self-pour beer wall. Think you've got what it takes to pour a perfect pint? Walters is the place to give it a shot from micro to macro and lunch to brunch. Walters is the place to be in Navy Yard. Reservations now open for the entire Nats homestand over at OpenTable.com.
1: Walters is a great option this Memorial Day weekend. Whether you're going to a game or just want to hang out and watch the NBA playoffs with friends.
2: Just go to Indeed.com slash Blue right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Blue Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need
3: Indeed. Shares sure your sense. And now the 1-2, swinging a high fly ball center field. Stevenson going back, way back. This ball is gone goodbye over the center field wall on a 94-mile-an-hour fastball. Abisal Garcia with his 10th home run and second in the three games in this series. He takes Max Scherzer deep here with two out of the top of the first inning. A walk and a two-run home run, his second career homer off Max. And it's the Brewers, two and the Nationals nothing the pitch to Soto and that
4: is that's called a strike he was going to ring him up but that's only strike two get in the game Sam Holbrook this is ridiculous Holbrook was about to ring him up Soto doesn't like the call Mike Holbrook forgot what the count was
0: he was about to do a strike three call and then realized oh it's only strike two And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, May 31st, 2021, Memorial Day 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MastinSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We, on this Memorial Day, say thank you to all of those serving our country, all of those who have served our country, especially remember those who died serving our country. We also say on this Memorial Day that the Nationals' offense is horrible, a new low point on Sunday afternoon 3-0 3-0 the final to the Milwaukee Brewers at Nationals Park to complete a three-game sweep. The Nats now are 21-28 and 28 on the season. I don't know what was worse over the weekend, the weather in the D.C. area or the Nationals hitting. And the other question we need to tackle here is, is this in fact the low point or just a low point? Because just because things are really bad doesn't mean that they can't get worse. That was something else what we saw from the Nats offensively. Over these last three games.
1: And we're off and running. All right. Hello, everybody. Happy Memorial Day. <laughs> what a glorious Memorial Day it is if you're a Nationals fan. Uh, a lot of good questions there, Al. We'll try to touch on all these things here. And I think back to <laughs> Maniacta many years ago when the team was truly dreadful with no hope, even worse than this, believe it or not. There was a time when they were much worse than this. And uh, Bill Lads from MLB.com had a penchant for asking, People, hey, is this, is this rock bottom? And he asked that to Manny Acta one day and Manny replied, he laughed and he said, Bill, it can always get worse. And it did <laughs> for that team. So I don't want to say this is rock bottom. You hope this is rock bottom because if it gets worse than this, this is really going to be painful. But this, these last six games. So remember, remember when they swept the Orioles? It feels like a long time ago, right? But they did sweep the Orioles to start this homestand and we thought, oh, maybe things are going well. Well, they go one in five the rest of the way against the Reds and the Brewers, and they scored nine total runs in those six games. Nine runs in six games. They scored three runs in getting swept by the Brewers. There's no mystery here what's going on. We see it. you, You don't have to analyze this. They can't hit. They can't score runs. That's entirely what it is, and they're losing games even when they get really good starting pitching performances. They're losing games because they cannot score runs. It doesn't matter who they're facing.
0: We want to hear from you. Uh, you can email us your voice memos uh, via your smartphones. You can hit us up, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can always, of course, tweet us to nats underscore chat. An awful ending to a disappointing homestand. Mark just said it. It began, the homestand did, with a three game sweep of the Orioles. The Nats end up losing five of the remaining six games on the homestand, a homestand that was ripe on which to get fat and happy. This was not an overwhelming homestand in terms of the competition. Three games against the Orioles three games against the Reds, three games against the Brewers. The Nats ultimately go just four and five on that homestand. You know, Memorial Day is considered one of the first checkpoints, true checkpoints of the season, right? You have the three holiday checkpoints, Memorial Day, July 4th, Labor Day. The Nats at this first checkpoint now, as we begin Memorial Day, 21 and 28 on the season, seven games below 500. And no doubt the offense is the biggest problem by far. We thought Sunday could be rough because of who the Brewers were starting in Brandon Woodruff. It ended up being rough, and then some. The Nats finished the game three hits, three walks, strikeout 12 times, go 0-2 with runners in scoring position, got completely dominated by Woodruff in much the same way the Nats got dominated by Jacob deGrom a few weeks back. Woodruff, seven scoreless innings, 10 strikeouts. It felt like a gift when he was taken out of the game, but the Nats didn't fare much better against the Brewers' two relievers, including Josh Hader in the bottom of the ninth, although Trey Turner did have himself a uh, leadoff single. Let me ask you this, and be truthful here, because personally, watching this game with Woodruff on the mound, with all the no-hitters we've had this season, I really felt like this was going to be another no-hitter. Like, it had that feel. Did you think that, or did you feel like the Nats would at least get a few hits in this game?
1: I thought there was a chance. Yeah. I don't know that you ever truly believe it's going to be a no-hitter until you get to about the sixth inning, I'd say, or so. But two innings in, yeah, I mean, you, you're, of course, you're, you're thinking this is going to be really tough off this guy today with this particular lineup. And to me, actually, I started to get worried after the top of the fourth, when Soto, Turner, and Bell go down in order. And that's now the second time through for the three best hitters on the team. And this was not, a, you know, as we've discussed, not a great lineup that they're putting out there. And especially in this one where Josh Harrison's now hitting fifth, Jan Gomes sixth, Jordy Mercer's in the lineup today. So once he got The big three at the top out for the second time in a row. I am thinking, oh boy, you know, it could be until they come up again before something happens. Thankfully, Kyle Schwarber, good solid line drive single to open the fifth, and that was the end of that. Yeah, sometimes we we joke about these things in the press box, you know, thinking, oh, you know, oh yeah, it could be a no hitter today. There was a little different vibe today. It was actually thinking that this was within the realm of possibility.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I felt like we were on no hit or watch watching this game, especially with the way this baseball season has gone. Hey, everyone. Al Galdi here to tell you about FanDuel. So we've all had that dream, right? Tie game, bottom of the ninth base is loaded. Well, on FanDuel Sportsbook, you get more than one shot to swing for the fences because FanDuel is letting you place your first bet risk-free. That's right. New users, Get up to $1,000 back in site credit if your first bet doesn't win, and it only gets better from there. Once you have an account, you'll have access to same-game parlay insurance all season long. That's up to $25 back in site credit each day if your same-game parlay bet falls one leg short. This way, you can combine multiple baseball bets for an even bigger win. Games on Memorial Day afternoon include the Detroit Tigers at the Milwaukee Brewers at 210. Yes, the Brewers just did the Nats dirty, but Corbin Burns is pitching for that great Brewers pitching staff facing the lowly Tigers. Milwaukee looks like the play. There's a reason that FanDuel Sportsbook is America's number one sportsbook. The app is simple to use. They've got great odds on all different betting markets, unique fun bet types like same game parlay and always on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And when you win, FanDuel will pay you your winnings in as little as 24 hours. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code CHAT to get in on the action. That's FanDuel Sportsbook promo code CHAT.
5: 21 plus and present in Colorado, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Tennessee, or West Virginia. First on my real money wager only for risk-free bet. Refund issued as is non-withdrawable site. Credit that expires in seven days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, one with it indiana one 800 270 for confidential help in Michigan, One hundred gambler New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Virginia, Tennessee, one 889 9789 or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. We're
2: driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all.
6: are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health care provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment, and before undertaking a new health care regimen, including EE system.
4: And Holbrook is hearing it from the bench. And now he just threw somebody out. I don't know who he threw out. It may be Kevin Long the hitting coach. It is Kevin Long the hitting coach. And Kevin Long has given him an earful. He knows that Soto knows the strike zone. Soto has not seen a strike in this at bat, yet it's three and two. And Holbrook forgot what the count was and was going to ring him up before realizing his mistake. That is just not a good job all the way around.
0: All right, so you said the name, Soto, as in Juan Soto. We talked about him a lot over our previous two installments of the Nats Chat podcast. We don't need to keep repeating the same stuff, but obviously... This has been the biggest issue lately. Juan Soto not hitting for power, and in this series, not really hitting at all. Juan Soto, who was the leadoff batter on Sunday afternoon, is Davey Martinez, again, reconfigured his lineup, goes 0-3 for with a walk into strikeout. He, for the series, goes 0-9 for with two walks and three strikeouts, and multiple things standing out with Soto as a batter in this game on Sunday. So first of all, he, as the leadoff man, actually does do his job, bottom of the first inning, draws a leadoff full count walk but then gets caught stealing for the third out with Kyle Schwarber batting. Another instance of Juan Soto, for whatever reason, insisting on being a base stealer this season. He's now one for five on stolen bases on the year. This has got to stop, this fixation that he has on stealing bases. And then came what happened in the bottom of the sixth. Juan Soto striking out on six pitches, despite having been ahead in the count at 1.20. That matters, right? Because we all know about Juan Soto and the Ted Williams-like batting eye. That he has. All three strikes are called strikes. Now, in fairness to one, the first and second strikes were outside the strike zone. It was a very liberal strike zone employed by the home plate umpire, Sam Holbrook. But in this plate appearance, we saw another one of these instances of visible frustration from Soto. He is wearing his struggles right now. After that second called strike, he thinks it's ball four. He throws his hands up in disgust. The hitting coach, Kevin Long, who's probably feeling some pressure of his own, Goes nuts in the dugout, standing up for his guy, gets tossed for arguing, balls and strikes. Soto ends up striking out. And then later in the game, bottom of the eighth inning, that meek, weak, first pitch ground out with a runner on first and two outs. Mark, it felt like another game in which, like, what's happening with Soto, emblematic of what's happening with the team. We had all these sort of snapshots throughout the game of how much Soto is struggling right now.
1: Yeah, as one goes, so go the Nationals. I think that's fair to say. So let's run through all these things the leadoff walk and then the caught stealing, you know, Hey, he's letting hitting lead off today. You're supposed to run if you're a leadoff hitter, aren't you? He's just doing what he's being asked. Uh, yeah. No, that wasn't, wasn't great. Um, I think that falls in the category of just trying to make something happen. That was his decision. I, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, I think, I think for the most part they get a green light and it's, Hey, if you get it, if you feel good about it, you think you can get a good jump, then go for it. I don't think that's a called steal on that particular pitch is my guess. I don't know for a fact because we didn't ask about that one afterwards because there was a lot else to discuss. But I, th- I think it's mostly that. But the idea of him hitting a leadoff, I get why Davey did this because at the moment, the one thing Juan is doing is keeping a good eye at the plate and drawing walks and getting on base. And so in, in a bizarre way, putting him leadoff would maybe allow him to get on base for Trey Turner and Bell, who've been swinging the bat better, and maybe drive him in in, in the first inning. You thought, oh, this might actually work. Makes some sense. And Then, of course, it didn't work at all. So that was that. I don't know that we're going to see him continue to hit leadoff. Here's the, here's the crazy thing. I looked it up right before the game. He had done it only once before in his career hitting leadoff. It was on May 30th, 2018. That's exactly three years to the day. He did it in a game in Baltimore, a game the Nationals won 2 0 that was started by Max Scherzer. So the stars were aligned. <laughs> it just didn't quite work out the right way for it to, uh, to work out. So maybe that will be the one and only time he does that. Uh all right, so let's get to the uh issue with Sam Holbrook in the sixth inning. Juan Soto's got a great eye at the plate. We know that. It's as good as maybe anybody in baseball. And if he says it's a ball, chances are it is a ball. And he was right about those two pitches, no doubt about it. Here's the thing though. Sam Holbrook was calling pitches off the plate all game long, started right from the get-go. And you can complain about that and say, "Hey, you shouldn't reward the umpire for that or you shouldn't have to expand your zone because of the umpire." But at some point you do have to at least a little bit say you know what? He's calling these strikes, especially when in that at bat, he had already called the first one, which was further outside than the, than the second one. So at some point, you do kind of have to take it into your own hands and just say, all right, I don't think it's a strike, but I'm, if it's close, I got to swing because he's going to call it a strike on me. So there's that. And then the second point to it, and Davey brought this up as well, is that once the, the second one happened, once he argued, once Kay Long got ejected from the dugout, Soto took strike three that was right over the plate. And that was probably the frustration of what had happened boiling over to the point that he, he lost the at-bat. He let the umpire's calls get to him to the point that he lost the at-bat. And you can't let that happen. Not if you're Juan Soto, not if you're anybody. You have to somehow be able to shrug it off so that if you do get a pitch over the plate, you can't leave it in the umpire's hands because clearly that was strike three. And that to me was the most disappointing thing is that he essentially lost an at-bat that was really important in the game. It started because of the umpire, but then he let the umpire get the best of it.
0: It's a great point by Davey, and I think it goes back to Soto is really feeling this right now. Juan Soto, since he came off the 10-day injured list on May 4th, remember, he was on that due to the left shoulder strain. He's slugging three fifty-four now. So, you know, we were at that point where the slugging and the on-base were more or less the same. Then the on-base was a little bit ahead of the slugging. It's now, since he came off the IL, three on on-base, three fifty-four slugging. It's not even close right now. Zero power. Everything's on the ground. He's not elevating anything, and to the point that Davey brought up during his postgame Zoom press conference, Soto had a give up pitch right there and, and what ended up being a give up plate appearance. Now, it should have been the case. Sam Holbrook had a very liberal strike zone. But like you said, this was in play for both teams on Sunday. This wasn't just something specific to that Juan Soto at bat. He continues to scuffle. You know, we talk about was this the low point of the season for the Nationals offense? Was this the low point of the season for Juan Soto? It is so far. The question, of course, becomes, do things get worse before they get better? They will get better with Juan Soto. He is still Juan Soto. But man, watching these games, game in, game out, and seeing him wear these struggles, we're not used to this. We're used to, you know, cocky Juan Soto, you know, Juan Soto with the swag, crotch grabbing Juan Soto, the Soto shuffle. Where's the crotch grabbing? You know, as odd as that sounds, we need him to get back to feeling himself, literally. You know, we need that Soto (laughs) on display. We're not seeing that right now.
1: The key to the Nationals turnaround, ladies and gentlemen, is more crotch grabbing. That's right. There it is. Um, No, he's not himself. You're right. In in any possible way, the body language isn't there. Obviously, the the hits aren't there and the swing isn't there. And, you know, you brought up the ground balls and there were more of those in this game, not just from him. Hard ground balls right at somebody, including hard grounders up the middle that, you know, for the first hundred years of baseball were hits, but now with shifts are no longer guaranteed hits. It happened to Schwarber as well in the seventh. He hit a ball 111 miles an hour. And the manager keeps saying, hey, we're hitting the ball hard. This is eventually going to turn for us. We're going to get some better luck. Those are going to turn into hits. I asked Josh Bell about that. Can you hang your hats on that and say, okay, eventually this is going to turn for us if we're hitting the ball hard? And I liked the answer that he gave. He said that there's different kind of hard hit balls. If you're just hitting a hard ground ball, in his mind, that's not a good sign necessarily because you have to hit the ball in the air to have a better chance at getting a hit. On the ground, the percentages go way down, no matter where you hit it. He gets that, and he's evidence of how that can change. Remember, in April, he was hitting the ball on the ground a ton. Now he's finally started elevating it, and he is hitting it a little bit better. So I thought that was interesting that he was trying to say, it's not good enough just to say we're hitting the ball hard. You need to hit the ball hard in the air, and as a team, they're really not doing that right now.
0: Yeah, and I think as most people listening know, one of the reasons for the launch angle craze was to hit baseballs over shifts, right? Like you don't have to worry about a shift if you're hitting a ball out of the infield, and the Nats aren't doing nearly enough of that right now. It wasn't just Juan Soto who ended up having a rough series. Josh Bell, who had been better, had a bad series. He ends up going 0 for 7 with a walk and three strikeouts in the series. He was the Nats' number three batter on Sunday, went 0 for 4 with three strikeouts. We continue to see this theme of the Nats leaning on people who should not be leaned on. Uh Josh Harrison has come back down to earth here lately. He went 0-4 with a strikeout on Sunday. Jordy Mercer started again on Sunday. Jordy Mercer ended up starting two of the three games in this series. Again, these issues of lack of lineup length Lack of roster depth. Jordy Mercer starts games two and three in this series. He goes 0 for 2 with a strikeout on Sunday afternoon as a starting third baseman. The Jordy Mercer slash line now on the year 213 batting average, 229 on base percentage, 255 slugging percentage. Okay. Mercer's not the reason that Nats are 21 and 28. We get that. But this is the kind of thing you're having to do this season start Jordy Mercer twice in three games of a Memorial Day homestand. It's not supposed to work this way.
1: Well, you, they got Starling Castro out of the lineup for you for a day at least. Yeah. So you had to be happy about that, right?
0: Well, Castro is better than Mercer, all right? Now, <laughs> neither guy hits for any power, although Starling Castro at least had a, a pinch walk on Sunday, so that was good to see. But uh, no, I'll take Castro over Mercer, but neither guy should be out there. This is the problem. And and I think that's what's so frustrating, and, and that's why like, as much as we talk about like Davey and his lineups and his in-game decisions – He really is at the mercy of this very flawed roster, and I think that's what's so alarming right now. How is this going to change? Like, What's a realistic path by which the offense becomes appreciably better as the season goes on, other than guys already on the team become appreciably better, do appreciably better? There doesn't seem to be any other path by which the team becomes drastically better offensively this season.
1: No, I mean, I think, so it's Memorial Day and that's an important you know, marker of where you are in a season, but it's not a marker yet that you can go out and make acquisitions, any kind of significant ones. You're still probably at least a month away from being able to seriously start talking trades. Teams just don't do that at the end of May, maybe the end of June, certainly when you get to July. So if they can hang on long enough, maybe there's a point this summer that you can try to go acquire a bat, although they're gonna cost a lot and I don't know that they have, The inventory in their system to get anybody of consequence without giving up, you know, Cade Cavalli, who's like their one and only top pitching prospect right now. So there's that. The other thing, you know, that occurred to me during this game, and again, this is like, you know, rearranging the chairs on the Titanic, but Ryan Zerriman and Yadiel Hernandez are really doing a nice job off the bench. Hernandez, especially, their pinch hitting has been the best in the league as a team. Now, maybe that's because you're only getting one at bat, and if you play them more, they start to get exposed. And we saw that a little bit with Yadiel Hernandez when he you know, was filling in for Soto. He started to get exposed somewhat. But maybe just for a day, you say, hey, we're going to give Schwarber and Bell the day off and Yadiel's going to start and left and Zim's going to start at first. Put him up high in the lineup and see what happens. I don't know, just something different. Shake it up a little bit. Give guys a day just to kind of take a breather, mental break, whatever it is. Maybe even Soto gets a day off. I don't know if that's in the works or not, but that's about the only in-house option I can think of that might make some kind of difference for them.
0: Yeah, I think the trading stuff is is so interesting cuz if you're Mike Rizzo, like you said, A, do you want to spend what little prospect depth you do have to get another bat or two? And B is this team worth adding to? You know, like at, at what point do you say this is just not a team worth investing in because it's not a very good team, you know? Now, it's it's still early enough to where things can change. We understand that. But right now, if you're Mike Rizzo, like, I mean, you're not going to trade Kate Cavalli. I get that. But whichever prospects you have who are fairly well regarded, who you would be willing to trade, should you be willing to trade any of those guys, given the state of the farm system, the fact that, okay, let's say you trade for some halfway decent bat, then what? I mean, is that going to fix everything? Like, is that going to really make things better? You know, that's going to be the judgment that Mike Rizzo is going to have to make at some point this season. Is this team worth trying to improve? And right now, the answer is no. And again, that can change. But right now, no, this is not a team worth investing in. you got to think bigger picture with the state of things.
1: Well, and I think a lot's going to depend on the state of the NL East over the next month or so. Now, I know we can say, hey, the Nationals are seven games under. doesn't matter what else is happening in the division if, if they can't turn it around. But if nobody takes off the division, and at the moment, the Mets are kind of creating a little bit of separation. But as we know, they've still got plenty of issues. I'm not you know, 100% sold on them. The Braves, who the Nats are about to see, have got all kinds of issues right now, including a new one with Marcelo Zuna. So if the division is so bad that even if the Nats are under 500, that they're, you know, three, four, five games out come July, there maybe is an argument to go do something. Maybe you're not going all in, pushing all your chips in trying to win right now, but maybe you are able to make a couple of calculated moves to help address the offensive needs more like role players, bench players, part-time starters you know, as Drupal Cabrera types, maybe that can happen. So I think you got to watch the standings to see that. Yes, number one, the Nats need to get over the 500 mark and actually be contenders to consider making moves. But even if they're not, they could still be in the race if the division is bad enough that you could justify making a move.
0: Yeah, and we we have brought this up. It does seem, and it's early to say this. I get it, but it does seem like the wild card isn't realistic—at uh, least not the way things stand right now. If you want to make the postseason this year, and you're the Nationals, you're going to have to win the National League East because the National League East. It's so funny how these things go, right? We talked about it as best division of baseball, deepest division of baseball. It's been the worst division in baseball so far this season, and the Nats do benefit from that from a standpoint of trying to win the darn thing. Uh, one other thing I do want to make mention of: I know Victor Robles is on the mend, and the sooner he's back, the better. But that was some catch that Andrew Stevenson made in the top of the second on Sunday. I want to to at least give him credit for that.
3: One ball, two strikes. Scherzer over the head. The kick and the pitch. Swing and a drive to right center. Stevenson back, still back. Warning track. Makes a
0: running catch
3: and slams into the fence and holds on. Andrew Stevenson with a jam in center.
0: Running backhanded leaping catch at the warning track just prior to crashing into the center field wall to Rob Travis Shaw of a leadoff hit. That is not an easy play to make, and he made that. That that was really impressive, I thought.
1: Yeah, it was. To have the concentration, you, you got to get there first, but then you got to have the concentration to finish the play as you know you're about to slam into the wall. So, yes, good on him, and Robles, of course, has been great in center field when he's been healthy, but they don't lose a lot there when Stevenson takes over. It's a slight drop-off. He's not Michael A. Taylor out there, but it's not a big drop-off, and so that part hasn't hurt them. I think offensively, you could make the case that they're losing something, especially as Robles was starting to get hot. Now, the good news on Robles, he played in a rehab game for Harrisburg on Sunday in Bowie, and he was able to DH and get four plate appearances. He doubled. He drew two walks. He stole a base. That's a good sign. Now, they may still want him to play in the field before... They are are ready to activate him off the IL. Now, they did announce after the game on Sunday that they optioned Luis Garcia back to Rochester. They did not announce a corresponding move yet. Perhaps that is a sign that Robles could be ready and may meet them in Atlanta to play on Monday. We'll see about that.
0: Yeah, I did want to uh, ask you, maybe you just answered it. The Nats do view Stevenson as a plus defender.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think more so as a corner outfielder than as a center fielder, but he can play center field. That's his biggest selling point, why he's on the roster, and, and it's why you know another aspect we keep talking about poor roster construction. Well, there two backup outfielders, Stevenson and Hernandez, both hit left-handed. You say why do they have them both on the team? Because Hernandez can't play center field and Stevenson can, and that has come into play obviously over the last week with Robles out. Are you interested in buying or selling your home? Support for NatChat comes from Rachel Levy of Compass Real Estate by focusing on the personal parts of the real estate process. And using technology to simplify the rest, Rachel seamlessly guides her clients through their experience. Rachel uses her deep local knowledge and exceptional customer service to advocate for her clients all across D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. To learn more, follow her on Instagram at real estate Rachel.
5: Hey everyone, Tim Shover's here to tell you again about Sunday Scaries CBD gummies. Sunday Scaries is here to hook up our listeners for your first order. Go to sundayscaries.com and type in NATSCHAT. That's one word in the promo code to get 25% off your first order. Again, it's sundayscaries.com. When you enter the promo code at checkout, type in NATSCHAT to receive 25% off your first order. They have plenty of options including oils, gummies, and bath bombs. What's a bath bomb? I'm not quite sure, but sundayscaries.com can bring you up to speed. I've been using the gummies, which helps me fall right asleep. Sometimes I don't sign off for the night until 3 a.m. or later. So Sunday Scaries is a big help. So if you're someone who needs help chilling out after a long day at work, Sunday Scaries is a great option for you. And Sunday Scaries appeals to a wide range of people, whether you're a stressed-out parent, overworked college student, or everything in between. To recap, sundayscaries.com, promo code NATSCHAT, to save 25% off your first order. <music> Max trying to make it 11
4: straight, retired since Wong's hit in the third. The 1 2 to Yelich. Curveball, ring him up, strike three called. It's double digits and strikeouts for Max Scherzer. Third time this season, 101st time in his career. That is fifth on the all time list.
0: Well, the marquee when it came to the game on Sunday was the pitching matchup. We talked about this at length in the previous installment of the Nats Chat podcast, Max Scherzer versus Brandon Woodruff. And the matchup largely lived up to the hype. Uh, Each guy was terrific. Woodruff ended up being better than Max, but really not by much. It's a shame. Max Scherzer's been outstanding so far this season. The Nats haven't won nearly enough of these Max Scherzer-started ballgames. Max on Sunday, two runs in six innings, only lasted six innings, uh, only is allowed to throw 89 pitches. But two runs, six innings, 10 strikeouts. Only gives up two hits, a homer and a single. Does issue a walk. He threw 63 strikes versus 26 balls. The Two runs coming in the top of the first, which we know can be a bugaboo for Max. Was once again on Sunday. Gives up a one-out, five-pitch walk to Daniel Vogelback, who might be my new favorite player in baseball. <laughs> that guy looks like a guy whose last name is Vogelback. Uh, and then a home run. Uh, a first-inning home run. We've seen this, obviously, previously with Max. Two out, two run shot by Abisail Garcia to center field on a one two pitch. That was some piece of hitting by Garcia there. But beyond that, Max was good. I mean, he racked up the K's. Like I said, ten strikeouts in six innings in throwing perfect fifth and six innings. He struck out five of the six batters he faced. For just about any other team, what Max did on Sunday was more than enough to win. But you know, you felt like Max needed to be perfect on Sunday. He wasn't, and the Nats ended up losing the game.
1: And that's the problem: is that this pitching staff knows they won't admit it, but they know that they have to be perfect right now. And you think about how many of these Max Scherzer starts this year has he literally made one mistake, maybe two. They often turn into home runs, those mistakes, by the way, which is an issue. But you could look at these starts and say he only made one mistake and that was enough to cost them the game. And this has happened to him more than once now. And he acknowledged the pitch to Garcia was a mistake. It was a high fastball. Gomes called for it. That was their game plan going in. They thought they could get him with it. It just needed to be higher than it was. He left it more at the belt level than at chest level. And Garcia put a charge into it. And Max was down on himself for that. I think also he knows, hey, what else am I supposed to do? Am Am I not allowed to make one mistake a game? But that's kind of where they are right now is that, yeah, he's not allowed to make one mistake a game. They cannot win when he makes one mistake a game. And it's unfortunate because he has been fantastic for them, but it is that one mistake that usually ends up with a home run that is the difference.
0: Max Scherzer now on the season over 11 starts, ERA at 234, whip a 0.82, strikeouts versus walks, 95 strikeouts versus 14 walks. And yet his record on the season is. Is four and four. I think everyone by now understands you can't judge pitchers by their one loss records. But I mean, how about that? Max Scherzer is putting up Cy Young caliber numbers, and yet his record is four and four. Not nearly enough offensive support for him when he has started for the Nats so far this year. And kind of as an extension of this is the bullpen, which you know by and large has been good. It's it's come back down to earth lately. That's true. But one run in three innings. Again, it wasn't perfect. And so that was bad. You know, when the Brewers added that third run on the homer off Austin Both in the top of the ninth, we were like, okay, if the game wasn't already done, now it's done. It felt insurmountable. Three nothing might as well have been 13 nothing with the way this Nationals offense is going Uh, with the Nats pen on Sunday. So Kyle Finnegan, boy, did he walk the tightrope in the top of the seventh. (laughs) Somehow tossed a scoreless seventh. He issued three walks to load the bases, but he didn't give up a run. I couldn't get over that. Uh, Wander Suero tossed a perfect top of the eighth. And and then the one thing that just kind of bothered you was Austin both did give up another homer. Uh, One out solo shot by Omar Narvaez. Uh, The outing marks a fourth time in six appearances in which both gives up a homer. But like you were just saying, You can't expect perfection, and that's what the Nats are demanding right now from their pitching staff.
1: Yeah, by the way, the only reason Finnegan didn't give up a run in the seventh is because Craig Council let Brandon Woodruff bat with two outs and the bases loaded, which was essentially Craig Council's way of saying, we got two runs, that's enough, we don't really need any more today, we'll be just fine. I'd rather keep my starter in the game than go for the, the kill shot here in the seventh inning. I mean, that was an indictment right there of it. I agree with you. Once they got it to three, nothing, it did feel completely hopeless at, at two, nothing. You say, okay, you get a walk. One guy gets on and maybe somebody connects for on one pitch that finally all comes into sync and somebody hits a ball over the fence, which, you know, there were a couple of balls off the bat today that you made you the like, gasp for a second. Oh, maybe Josh Harrison had one. Stevenson had one. Josh Bell had one. So, I mean, these guys are capable, once in a blue moon, of actually connecting and hitting one out of the park, and you just hope it happens at the right time with somebody on base. So I think at 2 nothing, you can still have those dreams. At 3 nothing, that was asking for a lot, especially once Hayter is in the game of the night. Even though the last time we saw Hayter in this ballpark, very different story, but that was a very different lineup he was facing that
0: night. Are you worried about both? Because he was lights out for a while. He's given up a good number of home runs here lately.
1: I don't think worry is the right word. I think we had to acknowledge that as great as he looked there early on, might have been a little bit of fool's gold. And as he's still adjusting to this new role as a reliever, teams are going to start to figure him out. He's going to start to wear down a little bit from the workload. So I can't say I'm shocked by that. He's going through that stretch right now. Let's see how he responds to it. If this keeps happening over the next few weeks, then it's a problem. If he figures out how to adjust and whatever that is that he needs to do to, to avoid those big hits and become still, you know, a, a decently reliable reliever for them, then it's fine, no big deal. I mean, he, on the list of problems for the Nationals right now, Austin Voth is about number 12.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, we did get very bad news regarding the Nats bullpen on Sunday morning. Davey Martinez announcing that Will Harris has been diagnosed with thoracic outlet syndrome likely done for the season. And, you know, who knows if he will ever be the same pitcher again. I mean, I hate to be that dramatic, but TOS is something that can ruin guys. Thoracic outlet syndrome is what has ruined Matt Harvey. Matt Harvey underwent Tommy John. That's not what ruined Matt Harvey. He came back from that, had a very good 2015 season. It's when Harvey had the thoracic outlet syndrome in 2016 that his career completely fell off the cliff. So it's been confusing with Will Harris. The quick timeline, March 13th, he feels numbness in his fingers while throwing in a B game at spring training. March 19th, we're told that Harris has been diagnosed with a blood clot in his right arm. Then the following week, March 26th, Davey says that, hey, procedure on Will Harris revealed that he does not have a blood clot in the right arm nor thoracic outlet syndrome. But Harris doesn't make his regular season debut until May 4th. He struggles over his time at the major league level this season, six runs, six innings over eight games. He ends up going back on the 10-day injured list on May 23rd due to right hand inflammation. And now it turns out apparently that he does have thoracic outlet syndrome. He'll undergo surgery. He is an older pitcher. This is a guy who had been one of the more consistent relievers in baseball. Nats signed him January 2020, three-year, $24 million contract. He had been really good for the Houston Astros over a five-season stretch. Nats have not been able to see that here over the first two seasons of this contract. And especially given his age, I, I don't know that we ever see the Will Harris with the Nats who we saw with the Astros.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I think it's fair to question that. And and Will himself brought up the idea earlier in the month when he was activated, and we hadn't talked to him in a while, and and he mentioned that there was a point in March where they thought it might have been thoracic outlet syndrome, and he acknowledged as a 36-year-old pitcher, you hear those words and you think, ooh, boy, that's going to be a tough one to come back from at my age. I mean, he's almost certainly done for this season. It's not 100%, but if it happened, it would be September, and that's a lot to ask of him to. to come back at that point. Now, he's got one year left on the contract, a three-year, $24 million contract that does not look very good right now, given how little he has pitched for them. But you know, you never say never. And, and based on what we heard from Davey Martinez, Harris is at peace with it. He's glad to at least now know finally what was causing this numbness and swelling in his hand and to get it addressed. And I imagine he's going to fight to come back and see if he can make it back from this. But it would not be shocking if you know, either he doesn't come back at all or if he does, he's just not the same pitcher anymore. And it, it brings up another point we made a while back when it comes to Mike Rizzo and his bullpen construction. There are years when he doesn't make a move and we all get upset at that and say, how could he not go get a reliever in the off season? And then there are years when he does spend money on veteran relievers and they inevitably get hurt or ineffective because that's what happens with relievers. None of them are able to sustain things year in and year out. So it does feel like a, what was he supposed to do? People weren't really super questioning that signing at the time. My only concern was the three years part of it for a veteran pitcher, but Harris had the track record. You said, Hey, this is a good addition to this team. Now look what's happened. It looks like a terrible signing now. It's almost like Mike Rizzo can't win when it comes to relievers.
0: It's so true. You're darned if you do. You're darned if you don't. Will Harris in the 2019 regular season was number one among all qualified American League relievers in ERA. He had a 150 ERA. He had largely been healthy for the Houston Astros for five seasons. I know the Nats got to Harris in the World Series that year, but that's not the point. He'd been a very good reliever. He comes here and it's like, it all falls apart. I mean, yes, there, there is like a dark cloud, it feels like, over the Nats sometimes when it comes to bullpen acquisitions. All right, so you gave us the update on Victor Robles. We next up have a four-game series at the Atlanta Braves, which shapes up to be a really big series with the way things are going for the Nats right now. We know Joe Ross in Game 1, Steven Strasburg in Game 2, TBD in Game 3, Patrick Corbin in Game 4. The TBD, logic would suggest, might be Eric Fetty. Uh, Do you think it'll be Fetty?
1: I think probably he did throw a simulated game Saturday, four innings and 65 pitches, which was an extra inning and an extra 15 pitches over what initially was said that he was going to do. So on the one hand, that's a good sign because it says he felt good enough to go that deep and go four up and downs, as they call him, which would suggest that he could probably be ready to go the next time out. The only issue is if he starts Wednesday, that's only three days off instead of the typical four. And he's, you know, sort of on short rest. I know he didn't pitch in a real game, so maybe that isn't so much workload that it's not a problem. But somebody has to pitch Wednesday. This is the domino effect of the doubleheader. Everybody in the current five would be on short rest if they were to start that game. So if it's not Fetty, then it's our boy Paolo Espino, or it's a call-up or something like that. So my hunch would be that as long as Fetty says he's okay, that they probably activate him. And let him start that game, maybe understanding that he's not good for, you know, six or seven innings and 100 pitches, but maybe he's good for five innings and 75 pitches, something like that, and then have Paolo ready to back him up, something along those lines. So we'll find out probably the next day or so, but uh, my guess is based on how he was feeling and the fact they don't really have anyone else, that it's probably going to be him on Wednesday.
0: Well, knowing Eric Fetty's luck, he'll slip on a banana peel and sprain an ankle or something between now and Wednesday because th- th- this guy, if it wasn't for bad luck, he'd have no luck at all. May 19th is when the Nats put Fetty on the COVID-19 injured list. Remember, he got the vaccine. he still got COVID-19. And because of MLB's protocols, he hasn't been back since. It's just incredible to me. By the way, speaking of COVID-19, Nats have reached the 85% the threshold. Is that correct?
1: Yes, uh, they're expecting to reach June 1st, that is uh today no tomorrow i'm losing track of days here on tuesday and uh they will be allowed to relax their uh restrictions and uh go maskless outdoors there's still some things they have to follow but yes it's nice to see they got over the hump they convinced enough guys to do it and hopefully this is the first of many things along the way that can be relaxed and uh get somewhat back to normal
0: and with all that you know it's odd the weather was horrible Uh, the offense has been even worse, but the crowd at Nationals Park on Sunday, biggest crowd to date, did it feel that way? I mean, the announced attendance was well over 15,000. Did it look to be that many people in the ballpark?
1: Visually, yes, it looked like that much. Um, From an audio standpoint, no, it didn't sound like that much just because the home team just didn't give them a whole lot of reasons for anything. I think in the Orioles series, it sounded a little more legitimate, like a real crowd. Just because those games were a little more interesting and some stuff was happening. So, but the next time we see them at Nationals Park on June 10th against the Giants, they are allowed to go up to 100% capacity. I will be interested to see what they actually draw, especially if the team is struggling. It's a Thursday night, you know, uh, school will n- just about be out, but not quite yet everywhere. So I'll be curious. I, my guess is it's not going to happen immediately, that maybe a little bit of a drawn out process to build up and maybe come July 4th when they're facing the Dodgers. That weekend, that could be your first like big time 35,000, 40,000 crowd. Maybe until then, it's more like in the 20s or low 30s. But I think everyone's excited to see and hear what that finally uh, sounds like.
0: Yeah, that's a good job by Nats fans. You had a lot of reasons not to go to the ballpark on Sunday. 15,326 is the official attendance. Really good to see that. Well, next time you're at the Nationals uh, game at Nationals Park, wear a Nats Chat Podcast t shirt. Only larges remain. We are selling these quickly. So get yours before we run out, natschatpodcast.square.site, natschatpodcast.square.site. Also, if you would like to become a sponsor of the Nats Chat Podcast, email the man behind all of this, Tim Shovers, the email address, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. All Nationals Radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast.
3: Smith the lefty sets, runners lead first and second the pitch. Swing it away, drive it to center,